thank you very much for uh, asking me to speak. I, I really appreciate it. And um, I think the subject that we're speaking about is a, an important subject. It's an important subject for Christians, uh, the vow of the Nazarite. I mean, the vow of the Nazarite was for a redeemed person. It was for a Jew who was redeemed by the blood of a lamb and brought out of Egypt. A Jew who had spent a year at Mount Sinai learning uh, about the law of the Lord and the ordinances and the judgments of the Lord. And then the Lord says through Moses, if you want to come closer to me, then why not take this vow? It was a voluntary vow. And uh, you can take that vow. Uh, you didn't have to take the vow for the rest of your life. But uh, you could take that vow, and the net result is that you would be walking closer with the Lord. And that would be a good thing for a Christian. Christians know the Word of God. They know the Gospel. They know the law of the Lord. Uh, the difficulty is that they don't necessarily do it. One time the Lord said to his disciples, Why do you call me Lord and don't do the things that I tell you? Which is one of those uh, questions, you know, the questions of the Lord are so easy to ask, uh, but they are difficult to answer. Why do you call me Lord and don't do the things that I tell you? And uh, I don't know what I'm going to say to the Lord when he says that, that to me at the judgment seat of Christ. I say the questions of the Lord are very easy. You know, the very first question in the Bible, he said, Adam, where are you? Uh, that was an easy enough question. To answer it was a little harder, wasn't it? Aaron, Adam had sinned, and he was afraid to come into the presence of God. He felt unworthy. That simple question had great depths of answers. Adam, where are you? And the second question of the Lord was just so simple. He asked to Cain, he says, Cain, where's your brother? That's not an easy question to answer, isn't it? Where is your brother? And uh, I uh, sort of feel that that's what the judgment seat of the Lord is going to be like. He's going to ask me these very simple questions. Wasn't the Bible clear enough for you? Yes. Didn't you trust me? Yes. Well, then, why in the world didn't you walk that way? What, would, what will I tell him? We were saying that uh, the vow was uh, a vow that uh, a, a believing Jew took. And uh, so a Christian might say, well, the vow of the Nazarite is interesting, but it's not really for me because I'm not Jewish. Uh, just like God commanded that all the descendants of Abraham should be circumcised. And we understand the significance of circumcision, but a Christian does not go off and be circumcised just because you read it in the Old Testament. And circumcision is certainly not a requirement for salvation. Physical circumcision is not. But if you were to say to a Christian, are you spiritually circumcised? That would be a sort of different kind of question. Just uh, turn with me, please, to uh, the book of Philippians chapter 3. And uh, maybe as we uh, seek to answer this verse, it may help us to uh, take the vow of the Nazarite a bit uh, easier in the uh, book of Philippians chapter 3. Now, Paul here is not writing to Jews. He's writing to Greeks. He's writing to those in the Greek city of Philippi. And he says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, uh, verse 3, we are the circumcision. He includes them in us. Some of the translations of the Bible put the word true in there. The apostle Paul says, we are the True circumcision. We worship God in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. And we have no confidence in the flesh. See? I mean, confidence in the flesh, that's what all circumcision is about. That ancient ritual of circumcision was putting the knife to the flesh. In this sense, it was very much like our baptism. 
we go into the waters of baptism and we say that we are dead indeed unto sin. We have died with Christ unto the things of the world that we may come out of that water and walk in uh, newness of life. And circumcision was sort of the same as saying that. I have put the knife to the flesh. Well, if you say to a Christian, are you circumcised? He might well say, no, I'm not a Jew. And we would understand that. But if you say to a Christian, have you put the knife to the flesh spiritually, that we are the true circumcision who worship God in the spirit, we rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And when you read that, then you can come to the opinion that, yes, God wants me to be spiritually circumcised, even though Physically, I'm not circumcised. And uh, so when you read the vow of the Nazarite, you say, well, yes, it was a vow for a Jew, but spiritually, God wants me to be submissive to him. God wants me to seek my joy in him. God wants me to abstain from evil here upon the earth. And those things fit right into our Christian way. And so the reason you took the vow was to come closer to the Lord. And that would be a a great uh, concept in your life, that in this year, uh, if the Lord be not come, you'll grow closer to the Lord. Now, we mentioned that John the Baptist was a... uh, was a Nazarite, and Samson was a Nazarite. If you turn with me, please, to the book of Judges, chapter 13. The book of Judges, chapter 13, we read about the birth of Samson. In verse 3, the angel of the Lord, you notice that's all capitals, the angel of the Lord, not an angel, the angel of the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ when you read that title in the Old Testament. A very special title. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman who was going to be the mother of Samson and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. You know, in the Old Testament, not having children was considered a reproach. You remember when Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, uh, she went through her whole life without having any children. And when she heard that she was pregnant by the angel uh, from the words from the angel Gabriel, she said, now the Lord has taken away my reproach. But there are these women in the Bible, they Uh, did not give birth, not because they were sinful, but because God really was going to use them in a wonderful way. Uh, Sarah has no children. Then he gives her Isaac. Hannah has no children. The Lord gives her Samuel. This woman, Manoah, has no children. And the Lord will give her Samson. And here it is that God shuts up the womb for a very special purpose. So if you feel that God is denying you some blessing, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a result that you're a sinner before God, but perhaps God is using you for a very special person. Well, um, uh, actually, Manoah was uh, her husband's name. Uh, now he says to uh, the uh, mother of Samson, verse 4, Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And so you see that Samson's mother took this oath before Samson did. And that's not really surprising because I think many times when a woman realizes she's going to give birth, she changes her lifestyle. She changes the order of her life. She wants to give her children every opportunity for health and for success 
And so the mother adopts a, a different slant on things. And here, this mother, anxious that the blessing of God might rest upon her son as the angel had promised, she herself would enter into this vow. Man or woman could take the vow of a Nazarite. And the Bible says that the child will be a Nazarite from, his, from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were a very special uh, uh, obstacle to the nation of Israel. Of the seven tribes that they had to defeat, uh, I think that the Philistines were the hardest to defeat. The Philistines in the Bible are a very, very, very difficult enemy to defeat. The Babylonians are way over there in Iraq, and they might come and invade you. The Assyrians are way over there. The Assyrians also lived in Iraq, uh, but uh, they would come to invade. But the Philistines were right there in the land. They were born in the land. They were fighting for their very own homes. It was very personal to the Philistines. Under no conditions would the Philistines surrender. And of course, when I fight the flesh, the flesh doesn't come in from the outside and sort of take charge. Uh, the world is out there, but the flesh is born right within me. From the moment I'm born until the moment I die, the flesh is there and it never surrenders and it never repents. And when I lie on my deathbed, the flesh will still be seeking to take me down. Therefore, the exhortation is to walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But it is no easy thing for a Christian to put down the flesh. Uh, just uh, keep your place and turn to the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua 13, where Joshua, after 50 years of fighting, was able to divide the land up among the children of Israel, co conquer the seven nations enough so that uh, you could divide up the land. And in Joshua chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old, advanced in years. Joshua was 110, and he's old and advanced in years. Methuselah was 969 years old, right? Uh, so uh, compared to Methuselah, Joshua is not advanced in years at all. By the way, the millennium will be a thousand years, and uh, Methuselah does not end up with the record. There'll be many people in the millennium who will live for a thousand years. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ will reign, and there'll be no disease and no war and no curse of the earth, and Satan will be in a bottomless pit, and you will enjoy the blessings of God upon the earth for a thousand years. But uh, Joshua uh, dies when he is 110. And uh, the Lord says to him in verse 1, You're old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. Verse 2, This is the land yet that remains. All the territory of the Philistines. I mean, good grief, you know. Who in the world is going to get rid of these Philistines? Who in the world is going to put down the flesh? You remember Paul in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. I mean, Paul is redeemed in Romans 3. And the consequences of his salvation are Romans 4 and Romans 5 and so on. But in Romans 7, he finds that there is, even though he's redeemed, there's another law warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of flesh which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this condemnation? I'm a redeemed man in an unredeemed body. And my unredeemed body doesn't get redeemed until the rapture, right? I mean, here I am. I'm saved, delivered from my sins, 
but my body is unredeemed, absolutely not repentant. And Paul is not crying out for salvation. He's saying, who can deliver me from the temptation of my body? And uh, so Paul has to cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, maybe in... uh, Maybe in the year 2010, that just went by. As a Christian, you called out in your life, oh, wretched man that I am, you know. I've been a Christian maybe, in your case, 30, 40 years, and you still yield to the things of the flesh. Who will redeem me, deliver me from the body of this condemnation? Beating the Philistines is not easy. Well, the Philistines lived right along the seacoast, right along the Mediterranean Sea. They were seafaring people. Their god was a fish god. And uh, uh, the territory that was given to them was, that was given to the children of Israel to possess was the tribe of Dan. And Samson comes from the tribe of Dan. I mean, in a very real sense, if Samson goes out to deliver the people from the land of the Philistines, he is fighting for his own tribe. He is fighting for freedom for his own tribe. It should have given him a, a, a really a worthwhile reason to fight. Uh, Samson is uh, well known, and he is a Nazarite. He is separate unto the Lord. His great strength, of course, does not come because his hair was magical. His great strength came because he had a vow before God, and the strength of Samson flowed to him because of that vow. Samson, I expect to see in the glory. Samson's name is in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. But that is absolutely the last good thing I'm going to say about Samson. You can do much better than Samson. You want to pick a much better leader than Samson. You want to pick a much more effective uh, fighter than Samson. For all his strength, Samson never delivered the children of Israel for a single day from the Philistines. All this huffing and puffing with wonderful strength and great acts. But as far as delivering the people, it never happened. And so when you look at Samson, you want to sort of read that with that in mind. Now, there was another judge who was born within 10 years of Samson. His name was Samuel. And Samuel was a Nazarite. And Samuel did not have at at all the strength of Samson, but Samuel trusted in the Lord. The people would listen to Samuel. The people would follow Samuel. And Samuel defeated the Nazarites, uh, defeated the, the Philistines for his life, while Samson never delivers anyone. So, you know, uh, rule one, you have a gift. Rule two, use your gift in such a way that people are blessed, you know. Preaching is not eloquence. It's got nothing to do with it. Or you can have this wonderful singing voice and you're singing there for yourself. The question when you evaluate your gift is, how many people are blessed by this gift? And when you consider, for example, the Nazarite, the Nazarite really will seek to serve the Lord in secret, and his father, seeing that, will reward him openly. But uh, the, the great deeds of the Nazarite are not necessarily uh, uplifted by uh, those that, uh, among whom he serves. So I say that with regard to Samson. Samson lived for 52 years. He lost his strength earlier than that. And he never delivered the people from the Philistines. Samuel lived for 90 years. And through his life, the people had peace from the Philistines. And I'll I'll seek to show you that. The comparison of these two Nazarites Uh, is very interesting. Well, we see the way Samson is going. Look at uh, Judges chapter 14. 
Samson goes down, verse 1, goes down to Timnah and sees a woman in Timnah of the daughter of the Philistines. And he goes and tells his father and mother, I have seen a woman in Timnah, the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. And when father and mother protest at this, Samson says to his father in the end of verse 3, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. That is not Nazarite talk, is it? Nazarite talk is he must increase, I must decrease. Nazarite talk is not I will demonstrate my strength so that I might find glory uh, uh, among the uh, uh, for myself in this world. Get her for me for she pleases me well. Sent to deliver the children of Israel from the Philistines, Samson finds beauty in the Philistines. His mother and father says she's an uncircumcised Philistine. She doesn't worship the Lord. She's not beautiful spiritually within. But as far as Samson is concerned, she is beautiful within. You know, you cannot sow to the things of the world. You cannot have one foot in the world and go along and say, but I'm going to be an effective Nazarite. That does not work. That does not work. There is no deliverance in that. Well, Samson actually uh, wants to get married uh, to a Philistine woman, and the Philistines uh, uh, sort of came up and uh, messed up that meeting. And um, the, uh, uh, when he calls on his wife in chapter 15 and uh, verse 1, father, uh, verse 2, her father said, I really thought you thoroughly hated her, therefore I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And now Samson has a personal grudge against the Philistines. This time, verse 3, I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Now, we read about the Lord Jesus Christ who had that beautiful spirit even on the cross that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he threatened, uh, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. With Samson, it is a tit-for-tat sort of thing. You have offended me, and I am going to get back at you. And that solution does not work in the church. That is not worthy of a Nazarite. That is not worthy of a Christian. He doesn't operate like that. If someone does you a wrong, just commit it to your heavenly Father. It isn't that that wrong will go unpunished. Your Father will take care of it. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ committed that terrible wrong that was done to him on the cross, he committed that to his Father. But not Samson. Samson is going to take matters into their own hand, into their own hands. This time I shall be blameless. Then he goes out and catches 300 foxes. No, that's quite a feat, I think. Catch 300 foxes. He ties their tails. He puts a torch in between the tails and sends them through the grain of the Philistines. And the grain of the Philistines is burned down to the ground. And that's a recompense to the Philistines. And it really makes them mad. But it doesn't solve anything, does it? You know, you lash back out at your enemy and maybe you get in a good punch, but it does not solve anything. Verse 6, the Philistine said, Who has done this? They answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her. That is uh, the one Samson was engaged to. And burned her father with fire. And as a result of that, in verse 7, Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you. And after that, I will cease. And so he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter, you know. 
and it's a very personal thing. Let me say again that when you have difficulty in your Christian life, don't let it be personal. Just commit that problem to the Lord. Don't lash out because you will always certainly, I think, make it worse. Well, uh, look at verse 11. 300 men of Judah. Now, Samson was of the tribe of Dan. But here's three, I'm sorry, 3,000 men of Judah in verse 11. Come down to Samson. And they say this. Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? I mean, what, what a question. That they don't, none of them recognize a leader in Samson. None of them recognize a, a savior in Samson. Samson, get it into your mind. Uh, we are subject to the Philistines. Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? You're only making it worse. Just cut it out. You know, if you lash out, you just make things worse in your assembly. You really do. You know, this, you did something to me and I'm going to pay you back. And all of that is beneath the way the Lord works. That's not the way the Lord Jesus Christ worked. That is not the way his sons and daughters work. And at the end of verse 11, Samson listens to them. And at the end of verse 11, this is what he said. As they did to me, so I have done to them. <laughs> Samson never gets out of that mode. He lives his whole life like that. See, you can't really be a leader. Nobody follows Samson. Nobody follows him. I mean, you might think he would uh, be a great leader, but not at all. Look at Judges chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there. You know, you could hardly believe your eyes when you read these verses. I mean, the Bible is supposed to be a, a sophisticated spiritual book. And God just lays it out as a matter of fact. What in the world is going on here? A, a, a Nazarite goes to Gaza to see a harlot? This is totally incompatible. Is that so incompatible? Do you think that there are men of God who actually lead godly congregations who don't have that other side of the life, a seamy side of their life every time that comes out? If you're going to be an effective Nazarite, you can't carry on like that. You cannot do that. And uh, Samson does it. In verse 2, when the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surround the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, In the morning when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city of the two gateposts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of a hill. I mean, who is sufficient for this? The whole gate of the city and the bar with which you uh, uh, locked it and the hinges and maybe part of the wall. And he carries it up and he carries it up a hill, no less. And he plunks it down at the top of a hill. This is a sculpture to the strength of Samson. Nobody's ever going to move that again. There, an unmistakable, wonderful tribute to Samson. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does that deliver the children of Israel for one day? It's all about him. It's all about his greatness, his worldwide empire, all the things that He's doing, you know. But where is the deliverance for the people of God? Even when Samson dies, you know, well, Samson is, you know, uh, he is betrayed by, he is uh, betrayed by, um, uh, Delilah. 
I, gee, I never thought I'd forget that name. <laughs> he is betrayed by Delilah, and she only wants to find out the source of his strength uh, so that she can trap him, so that she can steal his strength away. Samson, on the other hand, mistakenly believes that Delilah actually loves him and that he pledges his love to Delilah. And there they are. You know, he has his head in Delilah's lap. How can you be a Nazarite with your head in Delilah's lap? I mean, the whole thing is stupid. What's even more stupid than that is Christians believe they can get away with that stuff. Maybe you do have a gift, you know, a certain eloquence or a certain organization ability or a certain knowledge, a certain authority. And yes, I can use that to good on Sunday and I can enjoy the pleasures of the world during the week. That does not work. It does not work. Just keep your place. Uh, turn to First uh, Corinthians chapter 8 now. So let's see, you have read these verses, uh, I guess, uh, three, three weeks ago or so. First Corinthians is a wonderful, wonderful book. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. The end of the verse. Now, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You see that? I mean, maybe you have a gift of knowledge. Maybe you have a gift of, uh, maybe you can read the Bible and even understand the Bible better than somebody else. You can explain the Bible better than somebody else. And so you have that gift. And yet the result of that gift is you sort of exalt yourself. Well, then the gift is working in the wrong direction, isn't it? Knowledge puffeth up. You don't want a gift that puffs you up. You want a gift that you can use which edifies, strengthens your brother in Christ. You want to be able to use your gift so that you can strengthen your brother in Christ. Well, uh, uh, he is betrayed by Delilah. They put out his eyes. That never had to happen. Oh, they, they cut off his hair. And he loses his strength, but it wasn't because his hair was magical. It was because Samson just forfeits this vow. God is not going to work through this man. Puts out his eyes. They set him to making sport for the Philistines and grinding corn for the Philistines. This is not the man I want to be. I don't want to be that. And uh, so he gets his opportunity uh, towards the end or at the end of his life while they are making sport of him uh, after years in uh, captivity. And he is in the temple uh, and in uh, the Philistine temple in chapter 16, verse 27. The temple was filled with men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. In fact, there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof who watched while Samson performed. And Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me. Strengthen me, I pray. Just this once, O God, that, that what? That I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. I mean, the very last thing that he says is personal, isn't it? And so there were 3,000 Philistines were there. And 3,000 Philistines were killed that day. That's a drop in the bucket. That's nothing to the Philistine army. That's nothing to deliver the children of Israel. It's just all one self-wonderfulness on Samson's part. And so, uh, as I say, I, I think uh, we'll see Samson in the glory. And I know his name is in Hebrews 6. I'm sure that maybe um, someone in heaven will come to me and say, you know, you really shortchanged Samson a bit, you know. But uh, I really don't see much in Samson. I, I don't think he's of much profit to the assembly. 
He's just very talented and very excellent, and it's all about him. While John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist had the right idea. Now turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we still have this trouble of... uh, of beating the Philistines. Verse 1, the word of Samuel came to all Israel right away. That's a difference than Samson. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and camped beside Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why has the Lord always defeating us before the Philistines? Why can't we never beat the Philistines? Well, because they were not looking at the Lord. You remember that you just come out of the book of Judges and, of course, in 1 Samuel Samuel is a judge. We are still in the time of the judges. And the key verse in the book of Judges was, or is, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the last verse in the book of Judges. And if you go into a situation like that, then all you have to do is read that verse and not just blindly ask, how come the Philistines always win? How come the flesh always wins in your life? Well, because you're not close to the Lord. Because you do have a king. When the Bible says there was no king in Israel. Of course there was a king in Israel. It's just that the people had lost sight of them. Sight of him. And they could not beat the Philistines. Now, if you got a uh, chronological Bible, which is just a Bible that gives the date on every page, the date. It's a valuable Bible to have. I mean, it would be a New King James Version or NIV Version or a King James Version, but it would just give you the date on every page. You would find that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Samson was still alive. Samson and Samuel were born almost at the same time, within 10 years of each other. And uh, Samson's career is cut short. Uh, He loses his strength when he's in the 40s. Samuel goes on until he's 90. Samuel goes on to defeat the Philistines, makes all the king, which of course was something that Samuel did not want to do, anoint David, which was something very wonderful that Samuel did, and headed that nation of Israel straight towards the kingdom. But uh, you lose sight of Samson very quickly. In the book of Judges, Samson is born in Judges 13 and dies in Judges 16. And we say that's all. But Samson lived through Judges. He lives through Ruth. Ruth and Samson lived at the same time. Ruth and Samuel lived at the same time. And Samson is alive here. It's just that he's not mentioned because he's not going to make any difference in this battlefield saga that is before us. Well, the elders decide that the reason they're not winning is because the Ark of the Covenant is down there in Shiloh. And why not bring the Ark of the Covenant right into the midst of the people? And we'll march up against the Philistines with the Ark of the Covenant. This is not uh, Samuel's idea. This is the elders' idea and uh, the elders of Israel. And so they do that. The Ark of the Covenant is sort of like a good luck charm. It would be like somebody saying, well, now I'm going to live as a Christian. I'm going to wear a cross around my neck. Well, What? That's your testimony? I'm going to put a cross around my neck and that's going to ward off evil spirits or demonstrate my testimony? Your testimony has to be much more than there's a cross around your neck 
or that we're all marching down Hollywood Boulevard holding up the cross. I mean, you can speak louder to the neighborhood than that. It's that which is within you. And so they go out and they fight the Philistines like that. And the Philistines defeat them and give them the worst beating they ever got in their life. Ever. Look at uh, verse 10. The Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 men. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of the priesthood, Eli and Hophni, they died in the battle. And when their father, Eli, who was the high priest, heard that news, he dropped dead. And the whole priesthood went down in just one day. You know, you had no king. There's no noticeable prophet. The priesthood was the ruling part of Israel. And the priesthood was so corrupt that God brought the priesthood down in one day. The God of love, you know, who tolerates everything. God just brought that priesthood right down to a screeching halt. And when um, when Phineas, who was one of the priests, when he died, his wife was about to give birth. And in verse 21 of chapter 4, she named her child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured because of her father-in-law, the high priest that died, and her husband who had died. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Samson is alive at this day. Now look, the ark of God, when somebody says in the Bible... The glory of God has departed from Israel. I mean, that is serious. That is rock bottom. You can't get lower than that. God can say, um, uh, well, because of your sin, I'm going to withhold the rain for a while. Or you're going to get a plague of locusts, you know, to sort of turn you towards me. Or you're going to be invaded by a by an enemy or so. Or God uses all sorts of trials in order to get the attention of the people back on himself. But when the glory of God departs, that's the end. There isn't anything. If the glory of God departs from this meeting, then just shut the doors because there's no sense having any meeting. Can you imagine remembering the Lord and the breaking of bread? And the glory of God is gone. The glory of God departs from Israel. This is really, I mean, it's almost shuddering to think that people could get to this position. In the New Testament, there was a church that we know well. It's in uh, Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. And that's a church that uh, is quoted very often. And uh, when they were, the Laodicea was, would give their testimony, they would say, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. They were rich, you know. And money, sort of, they, that equated them to success. Rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. The Lord said, don't you know that you're poor and miserable and blind and naked? And what was the situation of the church of Laodicea? The situation was that Jesus was outside the door of that church, right? You know, there are two verses in the Bible. They almost equate, but they don't equate. One is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is true. The Lord could be outside that door. He hears every prayer, you know. He can be through that door in a moment. The other is um, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst. That is not automatically true. It is absolutely true that Jesus Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. It is not automatically true that Jesus Christ is in your midst. And if you talk about power 
or victory, then it makes a tremendous amount of difference as to which side of that door the Lord Jesus Christ is on. I mean, all we have to do is open the door. If anyone will open the door, I will come unto him and sup with him and he with me. But you mustn't take for granted that the Lord is there. Uh, you know, there's a very striking thing. Maybe uh, next Sunday morning we can describe it as Ezekiel. Just before the nation of Israel went into captivity in Babylon for 70 years, Ezekiel stood and saw the glory depart from the temple, right? Depart from the temple and over the eastern wall of the temple and to the Mount of Olives, and then it just departed. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who surely is the glory of God, and there comes a time when the Lord departs from the temple, right? When the, for the last time, when the Lord says, it is written, my house, my house, shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. If the Lord ever says to us, your house, then we are in serious, serious problem. It's not just that we have to get through another famine, or not just that we have to battle off another enemy. If the glory of God is departed from Israel, then nothing makes any sense anymore. See, this is rock bottom. And uh, Samson was alive at these times. So Israel is not a great flourishing something under the leadership of Samson, even though he is a Nazarite. There's plenty of Christians who have magnificent gifts that they never use. They just waste their lives, even though they are a Christian. But God has given them a, a wonderful capacity to serve him, and he does not. Well, uh, after 20 years, things start to get a little better. Look at, uh, I'm going to just read one more thought and close in two minutes. First Samuel chapter 7. Verse 3, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. Now this is being beaten by the Philistines, beaten by the Philistines, beaten by the Philistines. In this interim, Samson is dead, and Samuel is the judge of Israel. And this is what he says in verse 3. If you underline your Bible, underline 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. It is an absolute Great, great verse. Then Samson, uh, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts and put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. There it is. There it is. And it's a beautiful Old Testament example. When the New Testament gives it in doctrine, it, the New Testament just says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Here in words of greater eloquence, Sam, you, you notice he mentions the word hearts Return to the Lord with all your hearts. Put away the foreign gods from among you. Prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Well, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant and put it in our midst and we'll all march up behind the Ark of the Covenant. That doesn't work. You can't reduce the, the spiritual... Uh, objects of God to just a good luck significance. But if you change your heart before the Lord, God will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And you notice what he starts off saying, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts and put away the foreign gods. You know, when he said that, 
this is about 500 years after the Passover. Five and about 490 years or so from that year at Mount Sinai when God had given the tablets a stone. And the very first commandment on the tablet of stone was, Thou shalt have no other God before me. And the children of Israel, if you say First uh, Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, they said, look, we know that, you know. We received that back in the days of Moses. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the way, though, Samuel starts off. He says, put away your gods. You still haven't done it, right? Here we are 2,000 years past the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're preaching a Christmas me- uh, for a Christian message, I think it would still be very proper if you call upon people to repent, just to look people right in the eye and say, "Brother, put away your gods. Put them away. Put them down for the last time, and set your heart to serve God only, and He will deliver you." from the Philistines and you won't have to spend 2011 saying oh wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from the body of this condemnation we'll pick this up uh, on Sunday morning uh, when I come back uh, Lord willing our precious heavenly father we thank thee for thy son the Lord Jesus Christ we thank thee for all that we have in him Lord, we know that you've forgiven our sins. We thank you. We thank you for that. But we still know that we are redeemed people in unredeemed bodies. And Lord, help us to gain the victory over our body. We know that you have made it clear to us. We walk in the Spirit. We draw near to the things of the Lord. We repent of our sins. We put our strange gods from around, from away from us. We receive the word of God as Samuel has presented it. And thy word tells us that you will deliver us from the Philistines. Help us to prove that in our lives this year. In his name, amen.